This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Here's what's coming up on this edition of My Life in Four Trades. I went up to introduce myself to Raj, shake his hand and say, hey, it's Andrew Rosner. He immediately remembered my name, gives me a big bear hug, and then he pushes me off and he shakes his finger at me. He goes, you should have taken the tokens. And so him and I go and sit down on the sofa and calculate how much money did I leave on the table? And it was $1.9 billion. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Andrew Rosner, founder and CEO of Media Options. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Thank you very much, Maggie. I'm very glad to be here. We're so glad to have you. So it's our tradition in this series to sort of, before we jump into the four trades, two of your best, two of your worst, to just get a little bit of an introduction, a little background. So where'd you grow up? What were your early years like? So I've had an entrepreneurial spirit from from day one. You know, we had a corner lot where I grew up and I was on the corner selling anything I could sell. My mom was a florist and so uh, she would bring home plants. I'd sell plants on the weekends. I had lemonade stands, you know, and then I started lawn care business, uh, you know, shoveling snow in the winter. And then as I got older and started getting real jobs, I mean, I've been a meter reader. Uh, I was a fishmonger. I was just telling my kid a list. My kids a list of the things that I've done. Uh, I was a butcher. I graduated early from high school. I was a very good student. I didn't. Not to say that I'm particularly intelligent, but but I, I didn't study much. I wasn't like a great student in terms of my discipline, but I did well in school. I went on to college, studied uh, information systems. So it was sort of a hybrid between business. It was part of the business school, but it was um, a lot of computer science. And um, I started a software business in college in my senior year with a good friend of mine. We were building database software for blue-collar businesses. So he lived in East Hampton, Long Island, and we were we built you know like a inventory management system and and I don't even remember all the things that we were tracking uh, for like the largest landscaping business in Long Island and the, for the largest pool company in uh, Long Island and. What I realized was that was absolutely unequivocally what I didn't want to do with my life. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> I got a degree in something I knew that I didn't want to do with my life. And that was actually my segue into becoming a fishmonger. I, I started trading seafood commodities. Um, so I wasn't shoveling fish, but I was sitting at a desk on a phone talking to people in Peru, China, Chile. How did you even know that was a business? How did you even know that existed? I didn't. <laughs> I had no idea. This is kind of the common thread through my life is that I stumble into weird things and then I get excited about them. And what I will say is that actually the seafood business taught me more than any other business I've ever been in, um, including any of the businesses I have now that I've been running for 15 years. It's just a very salt to the earth business and um, anything that can be done is done in that business from ways to get screwed to you know just very essential core business lessons that kind of get overlooked and I think in the technology world and in sort of the fast-paced world of, of you know other industries, and uh, and it's just also such an old industry. So 
Anyways, I, I, it was an amazing experience. And then it was really directly from that business that I, I leapfrogged into my current businesses. So this is going to take us to your first trade. And I think this is kind of the, the pathway, the entree to where you are now, the domain business. And that was buying a domain name in 2002. Is it Hamon Iberico? Hamon Iberico. Yeah, Iberico okay. uh, would be the Spanish uh, pronunciation. I was close. I was close. <laughs> you did it. You did it justice. So, as, as a true American would. I butchered it, but just enough for you to understand me. <laughs> so set the scene for us for how you came to this domain name and what's happening in your life at the time. Like, where are you living? What are you working at the time? I was in college, you know, I was studying at the emergence of the consumer internet in the mid to late nineties. And so, you know, I remember this aha moment when a professor told us like, okay, you can put up this website and anybody in the world can then see what you've put on the internet. Somebody in China can see your website. And I just, it was like, wow, that's amazing. You know, that's powerful. And now again, the, utility of that was quite limited at the time, but I, you know, I'm hyperactive. And every time I have an idea, um, I would say, you know, as we said, I, I'm quite entrepreneurial. And so I, I said, I'm going to start a business around that. And I would start registering domain names with the idea of, I'm going to build this business. And at that time, most things were take this real world thing and put it on the internet in some form, right? There wasn't a lot of like, oh, how can we do things differently because of this technology? Certainly, that's not the way I was thinking. There were some people thinking that way, and they're now you know, billionaires. But in no way, shape, or form did I think about these as like speculative investments. I didn't think they had value. Um, I didn't think of them as internet real estate in the way that I do now. It was just the name that would be useful to put something on the internet. So you didn't really understand you just somehow sensed that there would be something to this. I just knew it was step one. It was like, okay, if you want to be on the internet, step one was you needed a domain name. In the same way that in the traditional economy, if you wanted to have a business, you needed a place of business. You needed either right. you know, an office or a storefront, some kind of retail. And so it was just, this was step one. If you were going to have something on the internet, well, it started with a domain name. And you know, to this day, one of our slogans is all roads lead to domain names because it doesn't matter what business you're in. If you're the pizza shop on the corner or you're Google, everything in between needs a domain name. And so it was just, okay, I have this idea. I might as well get that domain name. There was a sense of urgency of like, these, this is new and they're going to start getting taken in the same way that like Twitter launched. And it was like, okay, even if I'm not using Twitter, I should probably go get my my name as a handle just in case for later. Right. Yeah. So, but it wasn't, it wasn't that I thought, Oh, these are going to be really valuable. That concept didn't cross my mind until this domain name, thehamonibetico.com. And so this is, I think 2001, maybe 2000, just after the dot-com bubble bursting, I'm in uh, Mallorca, Spain with my now wife. And, um, she introduced me to Hamoniberico, this pata negra ham, this black footed pig, you know, that it grows in uh, the northwest of, of Spain and in the north of Portugal. And uh, very a, coveted, very, very coveted. coveted. At that time, it was the most expensive meat in the world. And uh, it was illegal. Actually, what I subsequently found out, it was illegal to import it into the United States. So it wasn't sold in, in the United States until about 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I um, or 17, 18 years ago. And so anyways, I, I 
tried this ham. I'm in the seafood business at that time. And I just transitioned. I was very fresh in the seafood business. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I can import seafood from Peru, China, Philippines, all over the world. I'm going to import this ham because nobody knows about this. And it's the best thing I've ever tasted. So subsequently find out that's not possible. And uh, because of the FDA says it's unfit for human consumption, like French cheese. And um, I uh, just tucked it away like all the other domain names. A few years later, I'm driving to my office. I'm crossing the Newport Bridge. And I'm listening to NPR radio and George Bush uh, Jr. is about to get the first uh, Pate Negra ham or Hamon Ibenico ever imported into the United States. And I'm thinking, myself, oh, man, you know, who managed to pull this off? So I got to my office and I start looking it up and I find the importer in Virginia and I called him up and I said, hey, you know, congrats. I tried to do this a few years ago. How'd you do it? And we kind of hit it off. I was in the food import business, too. And so we were, you know, talking shop and um he tells me, basically, he's, you know, I told him, I want to buy one of your hams. And he's like laughing at me. He's like, look, kid, I'm sold out the next year for over a year. And, um, you know, the next 10 containers are, are, are sold out. And, you know, I remember these are like $7,000 to $11,000 a leg for, for these hams. So uh, anyway, so, you know, basically conversation over. And somehow, I don't remember exactly, comes up that I own these domain names, you know, because I told him, you know, I tried to do it. And he's, yeah. you know, I could hear his proverbial jaw drop. And I thought, okay, you know, is this how much you want? And I didn't have a clue, right? I didn't, the concept of selling these things, I think I had heard that, you know, business.com had sold for $7 million or something. I ne- other than that, I'd never heard of domain, you know, about domain sales. And so I thought, I, I don't, you know, what I want is one of those hams. And he goes, done. And I said, what I want it from the first container, George Bush's container. And he goes, done. I think I said, that was too easy. I said, hey, $5,000, done. I thought, wow. And you're like, shit, I underpriced yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, but I had no idea. Almost immediately. <laughs> I also had no idea how to transfer this thing, how a transaction should happen, how do I protect myself from fraud. And so I just said, I, you know, I took him at his word. I said, all right, I transferred the domains on the phone. A couple weeks later, I get a coffin in the mail, uh, <laughs> you know, with this pig leg. And uh, uh, I get, you know, he sent me a case of wine, really good Rioja. He sent me, you know, a special carving knife, the big holder that you put the leg in. And so I spent the next month in my, with my wife, you know, eating this uh, jamón iberico. Literally picking out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was my tipping point. And I thought, wow, if this guy in this tiny little esoteric niche market wanted these domains that bad, and he's willing to pay me, you know, with the equivalent of, let's say, $15,000 for it, well, Everybody in every business in the world is going to want these domains, and many of them are going to be worth a lot more. And I clearly undersold it. Mm. And so that's when I really went down the rabbit hole, so to speak. And I just started buying, you know, it was like backing up the truck. But I, at that time, you know, most of the good names were already gone. So I had a little basket of good domains, but not great. And so then I got introduced to the domain aftermarket, and it was a cluster. There was no, I mean, there's no liquidity. You have these you know, really messed up auction systems, you know, with very thin liquidity, very thin markets, people putting crazy reserves, people are pricing these things by basically judging the wind and nobody knows what they're worth. And, and this is after the dot-com crash. This is not that long after the bubble burst. So there's also people who may have been participating or intermediaries are scared off because so many people got burnt. Did people feel like you were crazy or did oh. they say like, why are you going in this when we just found out like the emperor has no clothes? Totally. So like I had made a bunch of money, you know, 
not a bunch, but you know, for, relatively for my for my age, uh, making some money. You know, I I was early. I you know I was in the the JetBlue IPO and I made a bunch of money while riding that one up. And you know, my mom thought I was a, a protege, and she's you know crying that I I you know was basically I'd given up. It, no, I was like 23, <laughs> 24 years old in the seafood business, basically running this company, took it from an $8 million company to $35 million. I was making, you know, $400,000 a year, more than any of my peers. And, you know, I threw that to the wind, moved to Panama, and I'm running this domain business. My parents think I'm crazy. And you're married. You're married now, right? Yes. So is your wife like a risk taker too? I'm all in. That's great. Or she like, oh my God, there goes the house, the college education. It's all over. No, the absolute polar opposite. We are, uh, we've been married for a very long time and it works really well because we're actually quite opposite. We obviously share many things, but we're very opposite in many worlds. And and so she keeps me grounded and I, you know, keep her dreaming. I love that. I think that's a fair assessment. That's a great assessment. You know, at this point, you know, it, after a few years of, of successful domain trading, she, she sort of took the brakes off and was like, all right, you clearly know what you're doing. Just, you know, run with this thing. But we actually founded the business together. And, but she definitely, you know, is far more constrained. And, uh, but luckily for me, more than her adversity to risk, um, she had an adversity living in America. And so this was one of the very few jobs, um, you know, that allowed me to, you know, up and leave from the U.S. and move wherever we wanted to mm-hmm. live. Um, which was really high on her priority list. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what do you think you learned from that experience? So I learned a lot of things that that have carried over into every aspect of my life. Um, So, you know, ultimately I took that that single domain sale and realized that there was this whole market, nascent market, that was basically fundamental and foundational to the entire digital economy that – everybody could see or anybody that was paying attention could see was going to, you know, grow at an exponential pace. And so I would argue, and I, and I do often that buying great com domain names in the nineties or early two thousands was essentially the best investment you could make to directionally bet on the growth of the internet. And basically like I, I was really early in Bitcoin. I was really early in NFTs. I was really early in, you know, I was an early Amazon investor, Apple investor. None of these things even come close to the returns from owning the ground, really, the foundation of that digital economy, that digital real estate. It just it went from, you know, basically free to being worth millions of dollars and in some cases, tens of millions of dollars. So basically, I learned a lot about being early. I learned that it is very lucrative to put yourself in the middle of an illiquid market. If you can find uh, a market where people don't understand how to value the assets, Mm. there is a lot of delta to be made. There's a lot of margin 
in that, right? If you're a real estate broker, you can be an extremely successful real estate broker, and there are lots of them. It's very easy to be a media, you know, let's say moderately successful real estate broker just because the market's so large. But it's there's not a lot of, you know, variability in the margin, right? It's like the house next door sells for X amount per square foot. The house next door is within, let's say, plus or minus 20% of that price, right? Based on finishes. In the domain world, like literally, to even to this day, there's only a handful of people that I would tell you actually understand fundamentally how to objectively value a domain name. And so um, this got me obsessed with illiquid markets and markets that people don't know how to value, mm. uh, which subsequently later led to my interest in, in, in Bitcoin, but, yeah. um, and, and also subsequently NFTs, yeah, which we're going to get to. <laughs> so it basically stoked an enthusiasm and, and a deep, let's say academic interest in understanding how to value things. Yeah. Uh, particularly things which are not liquid frontier, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Frontier markets. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that's that's going to be so interesting to talk about it with your future trades. But let's jump to two. And that is I'm, I'm going to combine we're going to do Bitcoin. And I'm kind of combining two because it was your best trade, but worst trade as well. So it was your best trade in 2011 when you bought it but it became your worst trade in 2016 when you sold it. But I think that the, they're kind of one in the same. So let's start with your decision to go into it at all. Like how did this get on your radar? What, you know, was it because it was someone you knew or did you, did you hear about the technology? How did you get introduced to it? Yeah. So pretty good story. Uh, I was at that time in Panama and a couple of things happened. So one, I'm running our domain brokerage and, you know, today we're the largest domain brokerage firm in the world. Um, and so we have a very wide range of, of, of clients and most of our clients are really the best of the best. You know, most of the domains that we're selling are six and seven or eight figures. And so we're dealing with the best of the best in each of these businesses. And one of my clients at that time was one of the early developers of uh, Bitcoin, not one of the creators, but one of the early developers. And, um, I sold a domain for him for about 250 grand and, he called me up a couple weeks after this was, I believe October, 2011. And, um, he said, you know, look, I am so grateful. You sold this domain for me. I I'm taking everything and I'm putting it into this thing called Bitcoin and I'm buying, you know, some Bitcoin mining equipment and I'm just buying Bitcoin. And he said, this is going to be the future of money. This is, a very important, you know, technological breakthrough. And I couldn't have done this without you. And so I really want you to get involved. And I said, Oh, great. You know, I have an extremely high propensity for risk taking. Like I, you know, I, I would say I take calculated risk, but, but I'm very open-minded and I'm, you tell me, look, this is the future of money. Sure. Let's get some. So anyways, then he says, well, the only way to get it is you got to have this open source, download this open source wallet. And, <laughs> and here we go. And, then, <laughs> uh, and so, I'm like the least technological technologist that you'll ever meet, right? So I'm like, okay, sorry, you lost me at open source wallet. But, you know, I, I was intrigued and I started reading a little bit about it. And then um, at that time, you had a lot of the early Bitcoin guys coming down to Panama because Panama basically was saying, look, we don't know what Bitcoin is, but if you guys want to start up exchanges here, go for it. 
And so there was a lot actually happening. There was a lot of interesting people coming to Panama at that time for a variety of reasons. It was a really cool, interesting place to be. It was exciting. It was a lot of fun. So anyways, coincidentally, completely randomly, in that neighborhood where I lived, which was very small, three avenues by about 10 streets, was kind of the hub for all of these expats. So anyway, so I would go to these meetups and parties and I'd meet these guys and you know, I ended up becoming really good friends uh, with one of the guys that used to work for Charlie Schrem. And he really is the one that took me down the rabbit hole, you know, more deeply and uh, got me deeply intrigued and, 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 you know, informed about what Bitcoin was and how it really worked. And he helped me to ultimately buy it in uh, late 2011, early 2012. And, um, you know, I think I bought, I don't know, about $5,000 worth. And, um, maybe a little more. And, you know, I, I had thousands of, of Bitcoin and uh, basically forgot about it. Then like 2000, late 2014 or early 15, my friend calls me up and he says, Hey, do you still have that Bitcoin? And I said, I, I think so. I said, you know, but the only way I have it is if you know how to get it, because I don't know. How. And he's <laughs> that's says, well, a good friend. <laughs> he says, I've got, I've got a client. He's got, you know, all this, these gold bars and he wants to trade the gold bars for, for Bitcoin. And I said, Oh, gold bars for magical internet money. That sounds great. And he's like, well, if you want, you know, he'll buy all your Bitcoin and give you the gold. I said, all right. So he came to my office and we figured out that, you know, we found that Bitcoin, which was in uh, my wife's account. And, uh, you know, ultimately traded all of the Bitcoin for a backpack of, of gold bars. And I just remember like, literally looking at this gold and just thinking like, I literally, I think I st stared at it for about an hour and, you know, I had held a gold coin before and, and, you know, but this was just like a lot of gold. And, and I'm just like, what just happened? There was this magic internet money. I never even, you know, wasn't even really on my radar. I wasn't paying attention. It had hit $700. And, uh, you know, that was an amazing, seemingly an amazing trade. And then a couple of weeks later, you know, I was happy as a pig in its own excrement. And a few weeks later, you know, Bitcoin hits $1,000. And the moment it hits $1,000, it's all over mainstream media. Everybody's talking about Bitcoin. And so I called my friend up and I said, hey, you told me to sell that Bitcoin. And all he says is, buy more Bitcoin. And I'm like, oh. So... I ended up getting back in at about 12, 1300 bucks. And I, you know, I bought a little bit and then I got, you know, bought some more at 1500 and 1800 and, you know, and then I kept buying, you know, all the way up, but, but I never got back anywhere close to the number of coins that I had for, you know, that I traded for gold. Yeah. And I could tell you, as Michael Saylor says, Bitcoin was a better investment than the gold. Uh <laughs> I know. That's the thing. It's not even that you sold the Bitcoins, like you got gold. physical <laughs> delivery of gold. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is sort of, where is it? You still got that gold? Still got it, sitting in a safe. So it's so hard. At the time, though, it, it, it seemed like a really sage decision to sell the Bitcoin. You know, it's actually a really interesting point. I think it's a really important point because most people, you know, I have the I know, blessing, if you will, that I've been trading in digital assets for over 20 years, 25 years at this point, 26, and I've gotten used to it. But it used to keep me up at night that I had a lot of my wealth tied up in 
domain names. And it's like, what is a domain name? It's a bunch of, you know, it's an IP address. And, you know, is that, is that irresponsible? And I, you know, there was a lot of things that would go through my mind and then, oh, is it, you know, some new technology going to disrupt domains? And, and so I've struggled with that. I, I probably spent a decade struggling with that idea of what do I actually own? Mm. And, and then finally coming to terms with it and, and actually being comfortable having such a large amount of my net worth tied up in this, this asset. And so I was a lot more comfortable with Bitcoin. But even so, I took that trade. I, I said, wow, you know, this digital asset, which at that time I wouldn't even probably personally categorize it as an asset, right? It was just, you mm. know, it was like game tokens as far as I was concerned. Yeah, an experiment. <laughs> totally, totally experimental. And um, I jumped at the first opportunity to turn it into a physical, you know, physical money. And look where that got me. So your third trade is very interesting in light of the Bitcoin trade because your third trade is one of your worst and it involves selling Solana.com in 2018. So again, what's happening in your life at this time with your company? Are you kind of all in on crypto? What's going on behind the scenes? Yeah, so um, this I'm quite certain will go down, you know, it'll be on my tombstone as as the worst decision I've ever made financially. So, uh, you know, I owned Solana.com. It was one of the domains that the company owned uh, just, you know, because we have Solana Beach, Florida, Solana Beach, California. There's a lot of different things around Solana. And we just own lots of generic domain names that are, you know, geographical locations, people, places, or things. Oh, wait, this is wild. So you own this before Solana existed. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. For years before Solana ever existed. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said, our ownership of Solana.com had absolutely nothing to do with, with Solana. Um, you know, we predated it by many years. So anyways, this was 2018. I don't recall exactly the month, uh, but it was probably mid or late 2018 uh, because the bull market, the crypto bull market ended... March 2018, I believe. And so like February, March. And so um, we had Solana.com. Uh, I had, I was deep in crypto and I, you know, I was, uh, I went from Bitcoin maximalist to, I want to buy everything. And I did, I probably bought into, I don't know, you know, through my, our family uh, uh, investment vehicle, probably, you know, 200 ICOs, uh, including Ethereum, which, you know, we did well on, but 99% of these things went to zero, right? And so I went from Bitcoin maximalist to I want to own everything to don't ever talk to me about another, you know, altcoin ever, ever, ever again. And so we had just come off the back of don't call, don't talk to me about another altcoin ever, ever, ever again. I've lost literally millions of dollars uh, as a result of all these ICOs and, and, and speculative bets that I've placed. And initial, initial coin offering yes. for those of you who may not be deep in crypto. Yes. Right? And um, I get an email from Raj Gokhal, who is uh, one of the co-founders uh, with, uh, of Solana and um, with uh, Anatoly. And he says, hey, Solana.com, you know, I want to buy it. So Raj says, look, if you'll accept my, you know, crypto token – I'll give you a premium, right? And I think it was like a 50% premium that he would have given me on the price. And so I literally told him, I was like, look, 
I don't want your coin. Keep it. Just give me the cash. I want Uncle Sam bucks, not, you know, crypto bucks. <laughs> and so uh, Raj's like, all right. And, you know, wired the money and we did the deal. And I transferred him to Solana.com for, uh, I believe, $250,000. And then comes, you know, uh, I guess, what is this? 2021, September. And Solana has their first big conference. And it happens to be here in Lisbon where I live. And so Solana throws the Solana Breakpoint Conference. And this was absolute peak bull market, right? I think actually the week before the conference was the all-time high of Solana, if I'm not mistaken, which was like $280. And so I bought a VIP ticket. You know, I don't know how there maybe a hundred of us, 150 in this VIP. And there was a meet and greet with the founders and there was a cocktail hour. And so Raj and uh, Anatoly give this talk. And, um, you know, thanking everybody and they finish and I went up and to introduce myself, he immediately remembered my name, gives me a big bear hug. And then he pushes me off and he shakes his finger at me. He goes, you should have taken the tokens. (laughs) And so him and I go and sit down on the sofa and calculate how much money did I leave on the table? And it was $1.9 billion, (laughs) $1.9 billion. Ouch. I mean, that just hurt. So instead of 250 grand, I would have had $1.9 billion. Now, granted, I definitely would have sold some on the way up. I never would have, you know, it's not that I would have gotten it at that price and then sold it at the peak, Hmm. but somewhere between 500 million and probably 1.5 billion is what I left on the table. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So that is... That is a hell of a lot of money, yes. Andrew. And yes. that is that is just like hard to wrap your hand. How do you process the emotion around that? I mean, you're smiling as you tell me that story, but like I feel sick. I mean, yeah. how do you how do you kind of live with that? So I've come to terms with it. I mean, you know, I'm fine with it. I, the story of my life is stories like that. That just happens to be the biggest one, you know? Um, and don't get me wrong, like, I mean, there were, you know, it was a gut punch. You know, I've actually sold a a number of the domains to most of the big crypto companies. Um, I I mean, I look another just not to go off another story, but just really quickly. It's like, you know, NFT.com was mine. I owned that before anybody even knew what NFTs were. And then, you know, I sold that for two million dollars in January 2021. I started investing in the, the NFT space, but into the NFT companies, because I didn't actually believe in the NFTs themselves. Mm. But I invested into the NFT companies starting in 2018. Our, you know, one of my portfolio companies, Cryptograph, like we were the first ones to ever do celebrity NFTs. We basically introduced Paris Hilton to NFTs. We did her first NFT, Ashton Kutcher's first NFT. We taught him what NFTs were. The only NFT that Vitalik Buterin's ever done was with us, right? And that was all in 2018, 19. So before anybody knew what NFTs were, we were too early. And so when I sold it for 2 million bucks, I was like, great, you know, that's amazing sale. Yeah. But it was 
two months, six weeks, you know, before the market just went parabolic. And a month after I sold at mm. NFT.com, I got offered $20 million. Uh. And so literally, <laughs> if I had waited, I, you know, I held this name for God only knows how long. And then six weeks after I sold it, I could have made 10x the amount of money. And so the point is simply that this happens to me all the time and, and yeah. I'm fine with it. And I actually, you know, it's really baked into my investment thesis, whether it's in stocks or anything else at this point is I'm never afraid to leave money on the table. My old boss, my, my old mentor from the seafood business, he used to tell us nobody ever lost money taking a profit. Yeah. And so if you take a profit, you're not just by definition, you're not going to lose money. And so I never feel bad taking a profit. I'm not going to sit here and lie and tell you like it doesn't keep me up at night that I left $1.9 billion on the table or like, like I, I actually haven't even, I have another one, but I, you know, I'll save you, but like, but this is, it's only hindsight that you know that, right? 100%. Because you just said you've invested in lots of things that lost yes. my, or, or, or that didn't pan out. Totally. So it only, it's the pretend money because you just happen to have the hindsight to know. That's it. It could have easily gone the other way. Do you feel like now, because of those stories, though, especially in the digital asset space, because we're early in it, that everybody is sort of chasing that 30x, 10x unicorn? 100%. What's your advice to sort of navigate that? Because that's the certain, it's very hard to have a long career if you're just doing that. Yes. So I, I think it really, I think that the this, this, this simplicity with which my boss, I don't think it, he coined the term or the phrase, but nobody's ever lost money taking a profit. I think it really is just an easy mantra to repeat to yourself. And I think that every single investor on the planet should repeat that to themselves over and over and over again. And every time you're making a decision about buying or selling, you should repeat that to yourself. Just not losing or losing less often. Mm. As far as I'm concerned, and in my experience, it is the most advantageous strategy to outperformance is simply losing less because you will get, if you stay in the game, it, longevity and patience is kind of like the baseline. You need to be in the game for a long period of time and be consistent. And if you do that, then like, okay, you're at your benchmark. And then to outperform, you need to do something different. And simply losing less is easier than winning more. Losing less is easier than winning more. In the exact same way that cutting the, the fastest way to increase profits is not to grow revenue, it's to cut costs. It's the exact same thing. It, it, it's just applying the same principle to two different things. Just losing less is easier than winning more. And so just if you can take money off the table, um, I do like the mantra of never sell everything, keep a little bit, you know, uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Jason Calacanis has a, a saying, he calls it schmuck insurance, you know, always keep 10% as schmuck insurance. Um, <laughs> you know, you just never know. Right. And I like that. I think that's an important mantra too, but really just always, if you're winning, if you look at your P and L and you go, I am up more than I ever expected. If you are looking at your P and L with a big old smile on your face, that is the leading indicator that it's time to take some money off the table. Like, sure, let your winners ride, but take your initial principle off the table.
you know, it's just, I think that that is uh, very sage advice. Um, it, you know, not mine, uh, you know, I learned it from others, but it's something I practice and it works extremely effectively for me. So this brings us to your fourth trade, I think, which speaks to that. And it is buying your first bored ape in May of 2022. Yeah, case and point. So you, you had mentioned that you owned NFT, that you were early, but you said you were too early. Yeah. So you could have easily been like, this is this, you know, too early. That didn't work out and just turned away. But you didn't. You stayed in it. Why did you get back? Why did you go for the board ape when it hadn't really been something that took off for you? I had invested into the space early. I, saw, I know, you know, deeply what this was, what the technology was, where it was going, but I just didn't see anything that was an actual NFT that interested me whatsoever. It was like, I don't know, crypto kitties. Like, no, I don't, I don't need that. You know, there were some people that really got it with crypto kitties. I didn't, um, I didn't need that in my life, but then came, uh, the board apes. And, you know, at first I shrugged it off and then I had a bunch of friends that were telling me, no, no, this thing is really cool. They seem to be having a lot of fun. And, you know, I didn't mint them. I missed the mint. And this was about a week, maybe two weeks later, um, that they convinced me that I should buy one of these things. And so I started buying them. First one was for probably 500 bucks and then, you know, a couple thousand bucks. And, and you know, I ended up buying 23 of them. But the reason <laughs> that I, I ended up buying them was that, you know, my domain name experience, right? So I have this pretty mm. deep understanding of intellectual property. And when I read that the Board Ape founders, the Yuga Labs guys, were giving away 100% of the commercial rights to the owners of the individual Board Apes, that is what blew my mind. That's when I said, oh, this is different. You are basically, this was the equivalent of, you know, Stan Lee, before he launches Marvel Universe, coming to you and saying, hey, look, I've designed all these characters. I, I, you know, I don't know what we're going to do with them, but if you want, you can buy some of the characters from me. And it's like, yeah, sure. I'll take, you know, Spider-Man and Captain America and Superman and, you know, give me, give me that one. Give me that, you know. And so when I understood that I would have the full rights and ability permissionless to do as I please with these characters that were part of a broader network and every other member of this network was going to have the same rights as I do. And we were all going to monetize these things, commercialize these things, brand these things in ways that wouldn't have even been imaginable to the, to the board Ape founders themselves. I got really excited about it. Now I had absolutely no idea how big this thing was going to be. I, I, you know, make no mistake, but I knew that this was something different so the more of them I bought, the more time I spent on this, I just really came to understand that this was like basically the making of Disney um, or Marvel uh, at its earliest stages. And uh, owning these characters was going to be lucrative in some form or another, whether I had to go out and make it lucrative or the value of the assets themselves was going to go up to make it lucrative. I love the way you just described that because I think so many people are – struggling to understand what NFTs are or, you know, what, what's going on here. How do you describe an NFT? Like, what does it represent to you? So, you know, I think Raul's been spot on with his whole crypto narrative, right? It, it all comes down to network effect, everything in the world. It's like the two most powerful forces on earth are gravity and network effects. And so you take a network effect, you take a network, 
Okay. And if there's virality to that network and there's underlying utility and there's underlying value, or let's say perceived value, then just by definition, that network effect will drive the value in a exponential manner because I go back to the, 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 the telephone, right? It's like, if you and I are the only two people on earth that if I have a telephone and nobody else, it's useless. If you and I have a telephone, it has extremely limited utility. If a hundred people have a telephone, well, now it's got a little bit more utility. If I have a relationship with those hundred people and when everybody has a telephone, it is no longer just about utility. It's a necessity. So that is, I think, the most clear demonstration of network effect, right? So with each individual member being added to the network, that network becomes not linearly more valuable, but exponentially more valuable because that member adds value to each other member of the network. And as that number of members grows, the value is exponentially rising. So you take that network effect and you apply it to something like art and culture and that's ultimately like if we just use, stay with the Marvel uh, Universe example, it, it's art and culture combined, right? It's, 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 you know, comic books ultimately is where it started. And then it went into a whole movie franchise and figurines and toys and, you know, everything, which I think, you know, you can extrapolate on the board apes mm. and say, look, that's where that's going. We, we, ha- we see it, right? Coinbase is doing a full Hollywood production movie based on it. You've got restaurants now, you've got wine, you've got beer, you've got, you know, sparkling water, you've got, you know, uh, music, you've got, you know, the whole thing, but you've got a limited number of these things and a growing pool of people that want them. And so, you know, supply is constrained, demand is growing. What's going to happen to price. So, you know, that's basically the way to think about NFTs is it's something which is digitally scarce and is it can be it doesn't it's a reference really what an nft is is a reference okay and so it's a it's a new way of forming capital forming resources and so opening it up to the community and letting them run with these things ultimately is what creates this incredibly powerful network effect that just keeps compounding and compounding and compounding it's. I, I think your your Marvel example is really helpful for people because it's something we know. It's also really freaky because I was just thinking about Stanley. I I interviewed him years ago. It my favorite interview of all time. So if we kind of wrap it up on that point, why do you think you've been so successful? I think that having a high propensity for you know educated risk, informed risk is essential. Not taking risk financially is entrepreneurially or financially, I think is the status quo. And so in order to have outperformance in any way, you have to be taking some risk. You, you, you just have to, you, you, you know, there's absolutely nothing, uh, or as they say, the only thing certain in life is death and taxes. You cannot wait until you're certain about something to participate. In my opinion, in my experience, if you are interested in something get educated about it and figure out a way to financially participate. And so I think that, you know, to achieve that, you have to take financial risk and you should do it in things that bring you uh, some form of joy, curiosity, and stoke your curiosity. Um, they 
intellectually interest you. They challenge you. And so I think when you are presented with those opportunities, with those topics, those industries, you know, whatever it might be, um, it behooves you to participate. There are, I can't tell you the number of people that are, you know, in my friends group and, you know, broader social group that, you know, they asked me the same thing. Like, oh man, how, you know, how did you, you know, were you early in domains and early in Bitcoin? And and I I don't think I'm particularly smart. I, I just think that I'm very open-minded, which would be the second point. I think it's, you, you need to be willing to take risk. You need to be open-minded. Um, you need to be willing to change your mind at, I, I, you know, at a moment's notice. If somebody can tell you something that you can't disprove, you need to be willing to say, maybe I was wrong. And it doesn't mean that they are right, but it means you need to be willing to accept that you might be wrong. What about failure? How have you come to understand failure? Because, you know, when you're in frontier taking risks, there's going to be a lot of failure. Yeah, uh, you know. And you like to win. You're competitive. Yes. Uh, I don't give up easily and I like to win. You know, there's another saying. I love saying, by the way, I love mantras. I love things that I can remember easily and just repeat to myself because it, 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 it's another form of discipline. You know, it, it, there's little reminders. Mm. I write them on my walls. I, 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 I keep them everywhere. But uh, there's two that I think are pertinent. One is being early is the same as being wrong. And two is, you know, the first movers, the first wave usually takes the arrows in the back, right? And so um, I've experienced both of those things numerous times. And I, I don't think this is revelational. I think that if you speak to really anybody that's been successful at any level, I think they probably, uh, by definition, have to feel this way, that failure is the fastest way to learn, right? It's like, the, the best lessons, you, you, you don't learn when you're right. You learn when you're wrong. And it's not like I was born with that. I, I you know, I was a sore loser. I'm not a, I, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, passively walk off the field when I lost. I threw a tantrum and, you know, shout and yell and, and the whole bit. But, you know, with time and, and, and more losses and failures, you know, you, you just learn that this is part of the deal. If you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. Right? If you're not failing, then you're not taking enough risk. Again, it comes back to what we said earlier. It's like there's zero people that only win. Zero. There's nobody that only has success. You have to identify that failure is part of the game. And the more failures you have, the more lessons you learn, the more lessons you learn, the more successes you'll have. It is certainly a superpower that is shared with some of the most successful people we've had on. And we found in this podcast that people love talking about their worst trades even more than they love talking about their best trades, which is amazing. And I think a testament of, to, to what you just said. Andrew, thank you so much for being on My Life in Four Trades. It was amazing. It's been a pleasure. All right. That's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. 